John Stott, um, he's with the Lord now, but uh, one of the classic preaching books that he wrote was Between Two Worlds, in which he tells pastors that uh, you preach between two worlds. You preach between the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And he challenges pastors in this book to seek what God has in the heavenly realm and somehow try to put that in an earthly realm. Part of that process is looking at the text and saying, what did it mean for their culture, and then what does it mean for us? And John Stotts, this is a a classic preaching book, but the issue here is the pastor has to preach between these two worlds. He has to understand what God wants and then take what God wants and put it in a, uh, a human form so that we can understand it and then live it out. Now, this text this morning is a classic between two worlds. It is what God wants and what we are to do in light of what God wants. Now, if you look at the book of Romans, the the letter of Romans, it's probably Paul's most masterful theological uh, letter that was written. It was written to the church at Rome. If you want to break the book down, it it breaks down nicely into three chapters. Chapters 1 through 8 deal with condemning the world. The world is condemned, both Jews and Gentiles. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all need redemption. You look at chapters uh, 4 through uh, 8, then you're looking at the remedy. What is the remedy? Since everybody is guilty and condemned before God and needs to be redeemed, how do you go about redemption? And he talks about Abraham. And Abrahamic faith is what we exhibit when we trust in Christ, and therefore we become the offsprings and heirs of Abraham, which was promised in Genesis chapter 12. So you have this going on, and then Paul breaks for a moment in chapters 9 through 11, and he talks about the future restoration of Israel. There is coming a day when Israel will be redeemed by God. Eschatologically, Paul is mentioning in these two chapters that particular point, that God will redeem and come back and take care of the nation of Israel. So when we get to chapter 12, Paul has laid the theological foundation uh, for guilt of the world. He has theologically laid the foundation for redemption by faith. He has talked about the nation of Israel. And then Paul, at this point in chapter 12 through chapter 16, talks about how we live this out, how we start our journey, if you will, with Christ. Now, we've been looking at engage God in worship. We engage God in evangelism. We have connected around God's word so that we can grow deeper in our faith and grow closer together with one another. And you may think this is a rather interesting verse or verses to start when we talk about serve. We serve the church, the community, and the world. But actually, this is the starting point for service. You don't see the word service in there, but the word is in there. Now, as we break this down, let's look at what Paul says. First of all, he says we must surrender our lives and immediately goes into the motivation for the surrendering of our lives. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, Uh, appeal. The word appeal means he is pleading. He is begging with those who are listening to what he is writing. 
or what they are reading. And so he makes this strong, urgent request. It, it, it would be like, listen, listen, please listen to this and get ready to follow what I tell you. Brothers, this is an interesting, this is an interesting word. It does refer to brothers and sisters in Christ who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. But it also refers to a well-defined membership. That's what the word means, a well-defined membership. What is the well-defined membership? Well, Paul doesn't really tell us, but we can make some stabs at it. One is faith in Christ, baptism, uh, by immersion, uh, joining the body of Christ and coming together and growing in our Christian faith together and all of the aspects of what it means to be a well-defined membership of the body of Christ. And he says here, the motivation for what Paul is getting ready to lay down, he says, is by the mercies of God. Oiktirmos is the word for mercies. And it means to have compassion. So Paul says right here, brothers and sisters, by God's mercy. It's a great motivator. When we think about the mercies of God, we naturally go back to the cross. God exhibited the mercy of his own nature when Christ went to the cross. This should point us, when we look at this, it should point us in the, in the direction, I, I have done something so egregious that God had to send his son into this world to redeem me. But not only that, it refers uh, secondly to the love of God, but ultimately to the mercy of God. God did not have to do this under any circumstance, but because God wanted a relationship with us, he said, son, go get them and redeem them. And it is by his mercy and by his grace that we are here this morning as believers in Christ worshiping him. So I, I thought about this. When we talk about the mercies of God, what are we talking about? First of all, the mercies of God has to involve the forgiveness of our sin. When you come to Jesus Christ by faith, all of your sin is gone. When Christ said it is finished on the cross and gave up his life and he died on the cross, uh, he said everything is fulfilled in me. Christ became the propitiation of our sin on the cross, paying for your sin, paying for mine. And when we trust in Christ, God looks intrinsically at the cross and says, it is done because my son has paid the price in full. You do not ever, in a standpoint relationship with God, ever have to worry about your sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't sin and we need to, we need to confess that sin and ask for forgiveness of that sin, but as far as positionally, we are saved. The blood of Christ covers us. If not, then Christ would have to go back to the cross. And Paul dealt with that in Galatians, said you have to crucify Christ all over again. And the, here the issue is you can only be saved as many times as Christ died. How many times did Christ die? He died once. Therefore, you can only be saved one time. 
So forgiveness of sins, the mercies of God. He saves us from eternal separation. Those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ, they are not saved. And of course, theirs is the lake of fire, which Jesus talks about as Gehenna. And you and I, when we trusted in Christ, mine was October 12th, 1981. That day, even though God knew that I would go up and down just like the nation of Israel, God saved me eternally and is continually working on me until I see him face to face, which that will happen. Thirdly, he gives us new life and new hope. I do not know how the lost world faces life apart from Jesus Christ. They may try to do a lot of things to fulfill their lives, but there's an empty spot in their life that cannot be filled and will not be filled until they trust in Christ. That's one of the reasons why we exist, folks, to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Number four provides the Holy Spirit to help us. We sang this morning a song, Father, we love you, Spirit, Jesus, all of those things. God gives us the Holy Spirit to give us power to be able to live out that Christian life. These are the mercies of God. I could have gone on and on and on about the mercies of God, but these are the big ones that I think about. Forgiveness of sin saves us from eternal separation from him, gives us new life and a new hope. There, there's nothing that can come against us that God doesn't already know and that he hasn't already uh, made provisions for us. And then he provides the Holy Spirit in times when we get weak to continue to press forward and keep our eyes on the goal. Mm. the mercies of God are the motivations and that's why Paul says brother I urge you by the mercies of God think about what God has done in your life and then he talks about how we accomplish surrendering our lives to him and this is this is what he writes in verse 1b, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you want to know what a surrendered life looks like, Paul says this is the means by which you do it. You have to present your bodies. Peristomy, peristomy. This is an interesting word to present. It means to... Listen to this. To exchange ownership. To present means to exchange ownership. When we were without Christ, we lived for ourselves. We were in charge. We did things our way. But when you present yourself, Paul does something masterfully here. When we present ourselves, we are giving God the reins of our heart, where God then begins to control our lives. I, you cannot begin being a living sacrifice until the reins of your heart have been given 
to God so that he then takes ownership of your life. You have been, you and I both have been bought with a price. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, the life that we now live, we do not live in our own way, in our own desire, in our own hearts. We, at that point, when we trust in Christ, we turn the reins over to him and say, God, this, I am I am yours now. You take control of my life. And Paul says, by the mercies of God, present yourself. Give yourself to him. Turn your life over to him. That's the only, you can't get to the, you cannot get to the service. But by the way, the word serve is in here. Uh, here, you cannot begin to serve the church, serve the community, serve the world, serve God until you've given your life over to him. And he says, present your bodies. I like what Douglas Moo says in his commentary. Body can, of course, refer to the physical body as such, as the metaphorical associations with the sacrifice make it, appro- make it an appropriate choice here. So he's not arguing that it, it, it can't refer, it, that it refers to the body. He's not arguing that. But what he's saying is, but Paul probably intends it to refer to the entire person with special emphasis on that person's interaction with the world, which he will bring into the discussion in verse 2. So when he says, present your bodies, and then mentions the spiritual act of worship, he is talking not only about the physical body, but he is talking about you as an individual, as a person who has been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And that really does kind of change things. And he goes on to here to say, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There is no doubt in my mind what what Paul is drawing a reference to. He is drawing a reference here to the Old Testament about the offering of a sacrifice where the priest would take the sacrifice, he would uh, kill the sacrifice, he would put the blood on the, on the post, he would offer it to God as a way of uh, reducing or forgiving the sins of the, of the people. And the, the Apostle Paul here, no doubt, is going back to the Old Testament, but now there's a difference taking place here. Uh, Since we don't live in the Old Testament, we don't offer sacrifices to God that way. We actually now become the sacrifice. We actually are the ones that go on the altar before God spiritually, so to speak, not not laying out here physically, but in our hearts, we go before God and offer ourselves. We, We give him our lives and then we say we are going to be a living sacrifice. As I thought about this, something came to my mind. This is specifically for believers. He says, I urge you, brothers, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable, which is your reasonable uh, service, your worship. The lost world cannot offer living sacrifices 
they offer at best dead sacrifices. We offer a living sacrifice because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Our offering, Paul says, is living. This word refers to newness of life. Again, unbelievers, and I know some unbelievers go to church religiously week after week after week, but they're dead. They cannot offer a living sacrifice because they've never been redeemed and brought back from the brink of spiritual death. We can. We offer our living sacrifice. We have newness of life. Therefore, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Secondly, holy. That's where we get the part set apart. So I want you to see, but even before Paul gets to verse 2, he's laying the foundation for when he gets to verse 2. But if you are not giving Christ and God the reins to your heart, where God is in control, you can never get to this. Because you have to understand, we, this is our lives. Our lives are this. My life is not my own, and I am set apart for God. He has ownership over my life. Therefore, my heart should be to come before him, to give him my life, knowing that I am a living sacrifice, by the way, which never dies. In the Old Testament, the sheep was killed. Here, we continually offer a living sacrifice before God. Uh, And we are set apart. God has a plan. I want you to understand this, please. God has a plan for your life. He has a perfect plan for your life. You have been set apart. (laughs) Think about this for a minute. Just think about this for a minute. He has set you apart. You, Michael Frazier, have been set apart for my service. You, Tammy, you have been set apart for service to God. Anybody else in this room that has received Jesus Christ, you have been set. Think think about that for a second. You are a special vehicle for God. What God has great plans for you. Plans for good and not for evil. And then he mentions here, acceptable, well-pleasing. He gives us a sandwich in the next few verses. We'll go into that when we get there. But acceptable, well, well-pleasing. Uh, an Old Testament priest would never offer a less-than-perfect sacrifice. And it becomes difficult because I know what you're thinking. Well, I still sin. Yes, you do still sin. It's covered by the blood of Christ. We've, we've looked at that in the mercies of God. But now... Your whole life and my whole life, I'm not just picking on you guys, but my life as, as, as well should be well-pleasing to God. That should be the goal of our lives, to live in such a way that God would say, I'm pleased with the vessel that I have set apart for my service. And that's really a challenge. 1 Thessalonians 4.1 says this, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you, there's, again, Paul, uh, in the Lord Jesus, that you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God 
just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. I think many Christians get this idea, and, and I've heard it, and they said, Jesus can be my Savior, but not my Lord. You know, I can trust in Jesus Christ, and I can kind of live how I want to. I can live in rebellion that whole life. That's foreign. That is foreign to the New Testament. <laughs> That's foreign right here. When you come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, at that point, at that point is when we're supposed to turn the reins over to him so that we can live for him. Jesus is not only your Savior, he is your Lord. And I've heard Christians say, oh, I can trust in Jesus Christ, but then I can kind of live for myself and do whatever I want to do. Not when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you and the Holy Spirit says, uh-uh, that's not your spiritual worship. That's not how this works. And then he says, which is your spiritual worship. Logikos Latreia. Logikos Latreia. You ready for this? Spiritual worship. Those two words. Logikos Latreia. Genuine service. See this? Genuine service. I'm thinking, I'm thinking we can't begin to serve the church, the community, and the world until this issue is taken care of. This is this is this is the fight. Because if if we will present and give God control of our lives and seek to please him with our lives, then you can begin your spiritual worship. And you notice, you, you look at it and you go, well, spiritual worship sounds different than genuine service to God. Well, I'm telling you exactly what, what the Greek means here. Logios, uh, logia, logios latreia, genuine service to God. No priest worth his salt in the Old Testament would have said, eh, I'm just going to kind of give it a little bit, and I'm just going to offer it. No, they would not do that. They would not do that. It was so severe. Priests took their job very seriously, and so should we. Peter says, you are a royal priesthood. Did you know that? You are a priest in God's service. And this is your spiritual worship and mine. To present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. I like what Kenneth Boas says. Paul is drawing on a contrast here between the physical sacrifices of the Old Testament and the spiritual sacrifices of the New Testament. The spiritual act of worship, which Paul is encouraging, is one that springs from the inner man. So... When we look at the word spiritual, Paul already identifies the problem. The problem is stated in verse 2. You have to renew your minds to do this. 
Now notice what he writes. There's the fight. I want you to see the fight here. I'm not saying you're going to do it perfectly. But your living sacrifice happens every morning when you get out of bed and your feet hit the floor. This isn't just come to church, sing a few songs, listen to Pastor Mike preach a sermon, and then go home. That's not what it is. This is, if you want to put it this way, this is the locker room where we get pumped up to go out and live for him again starting tomorrow morning. And, if you could, you could argue it this way, uh, when you walk out the church door today, you start living for him. And I see a fight here. I don't know if you guys and gals see a fight, but I do. Paul has just said, present yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service. Oh, and by the way, this is a problem that you're going to face trying to do that. Do you, do you see what Paul's doing here? Do you, you kind of make the, make the connections? He says, do not be conformed to this world. <laughs> Have you ever made a promise to God? God, I'm going to. I'm going to do this. And immediately, immediately the flesh comes along and the world comes along and says, mm, I'm going to pull you away from that. That's why Paul says, do not be conformed to this world. I own is the word for world. We'll get into that in just a second. But this word confer, uh, conformed means to pattern your life's behavior after. I love this little picture. This little boy sees his dad out mowing the lawn, and he goes, I want to be like dad. So he takes his little lawnmower, and he goes next to it. He's trying to mimic his father. We don't do that with the world. We don't go, I'm a believer, so I'm going to pattern my life after the world. No, if you're a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, you do not conform, you do not pattern your life after this world. Brothers and sisters, Christians get into trouble all the time when they fall prey to the idea that you can live for Christ and live for the world. And then God bless them. They start making mistakes. And some of these mistakes can last a lifetime. Do not look at the world and live like the world because you have been set apart. You are a child of the king. You have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Therefore, in light of that, Paul says there's going to be a fight and it's going to take place right here. You've got to get this, got to get this stuff right in order to be able to do what he just said to do in verse 1. He says here, do not be conformed to this world. I love what Cranfield said. On the basis of the gospel, in light of the mercies of God, there is only one possibility that is properly open to them, and that is to resist the process of being continually molded and fashioned according to the present, to the pattern of the present age. That's awesome. Resist. Do not be conformed. 
the world pulls out, live for yourself. Christ calls out, live for me. Follow me. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow me. The world says, do not pick up your cross. Follow us. You're saved. You're going to heaven. That's true. But you live for the world. Go ahead and just live for the world. That's not, that is foreign to the New Testament. You would never catch an Old Testament priest doing that. And he, if you did, he, he might get fired up by God. But you don't do that. The world is the word I own. If you could say it this way, I own. I own. He just got through giving that I am not ownership of my life. And here it says, to this world. Do not pattern your life and your lifestyle and your principles after the world. Las Vegas. Just using this as, as an example. You see these commercials all the time. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And they proudly boast themselves as sin city. This is the world. It's okay to live like this. And Christians buy into this stuff. No, and it's a fight. I get it. It is a fight. You, when you wake up in the morning, you have to fight this off every day. I'll say it this way. If there is no fight, you need to watch out. If you don't think there is any fight going on in you, Satan has you against the ropes right there. You should be offended by things. Things should not look right to you. You've been redeemed by, and I've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Instead of being conformed and pattering your life after this world, Paul says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Transformed is the word for change to something or change its appearance. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't Christ, therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. All things have passed away. Yes. But Paul would also realize that there's a spiritual struggle taking place as you seek to live a spiritual life of, of service for God. Just because you got redeemed doesn't mean your mind got redeemed. You have the blood of Christ, you, and we're, we're told many times in Scripture that we're to live for him. But there's still this idea of something that we need to do but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I have never seen a trans transformation take place in the realm of service to God that did not in, in, invite or encourage some type of self-renewal. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Do not, do not lock, walk like the world, but get your mind in the mindset which the Holy Spirit helps you do. Get your mind in the mindset that you are going to live for God. It is a mindset. You think, well, how long does this go on? <laughs> well, it goes on until you be with Jesus, until you see him face to face. 
The word renewal means to make new. Surgeons. Now, sometimes they can do it by, now they have these machines now where they can, they can do surgeries without actually cutting you open. But uh, most of the time, surgeons have to go inside to make the fix. Paul here is talking about an inward fix. So, and you know, when I was a young believer, when I was first growing up, I didn't know any of this. I knew I was saved. I didn't know you're supposed to be discipled. Then I started getting in church, started realizing, whoa, wait a minute, okay, I gotta, I need to make some changes with the help of the Holy Spirit. I need to begin uh, uh, thinking a different way that I, I no longer think the way the world thinks. And my goodness, uh, 30 something years later, I got it. Now, I'm not saying I'm going to stumble and not fall somewhere or have problems with it, but I understand the concept. The concept is this is not my life. I'll be perfectly honest with you. If this was my life, I would have retired from the army. But I followed God because I knew he called me. If this was my life, we'd be having a different discussion. But this is not my life. And your life is not your life. God has a purpose for your life. And you have, to, you have to submit to that purpose. And it happens when we go inside and we begin allowing God. And by the way, the word mind is the word, this is interesting. All these words are kind of interesting at times. It's the word noose. Sounds like a noose. It really does in the, in the Greek. The word noose, and that word means a way of thinking. You're saying, Pastor, does that mean I have to change the way that I think? That's exactly what Paul's saying. You have to change the way that you think about the world, about the church, about life. And again, the world doesn't even give it a second thought. They just live however. Of course, they're not under the blood of Christ. They haven't been redeemed. Their eyes are blind. Not us. You and I have been raised with Christ. Seek things that are above where Christ is seated. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Well, how does this play out practically? Because really what you see here, when Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, you've got two worlds going on. You've got the unredeemed world trying to pull you in the direction. And Paul says, no, you live in a heavenly realm now. God redeemed you from this. Therefore, as Paul writes in Colossians, seek things above. I'm not talking about like this and you, you don't know where you're going, but I'm talking about get your mindset on the kingdom of God. And I'm going to say it's difficult. I get it. It's a difficult way to live. And we will not do it perfectly. But just because I, I can't do it perfectly doesn't mean that we don't aim for it. Well, if the world's going to win anyway, then, then I know that I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. I'm just going to do whatever. No. 
No, you got to pick it up and look up and live in the upper realm while you're here. This is Paul's theology at its core. Already, not yet. We're already redeemed. We're already going to heaven, but not yet because we still live here. So we're torn between two worlds. That's fact. God's will. Renew our minds. The fight is between putting the world off, not following the way that they live and walk and talk and live, and God's way. That by testing, you may discern what the will of God is. Dukimazo. I like that. Dukimazo. That's the word for discern. And it means to learn the genuineness of something by examination. You bring a, a jewel into a jeweler, and when you look at it, you go, wow, this is genuine. My grandmother told me that this was bought in wherever it was bought and that it's priceless. And so you take that gem into the store, into the jeweler, and you would say, I would like an appraisal on this because my grandmother said it was priceless. Well, the jeweler will look at it, and then he'll look at it. And he says, this is only like one carat. This is not as valuable as you think it is. We are to examine carefully through the lens of Jesus Christ. And it, just like a jeweler who goes, huh, uh, probably immediately can look at it and go, yeah, he may turn it this way a little bit. He may move it around, but he knows exactly the fake from the real thing. Sometimes we don't even test stuff. I don't know how many times we don't test stuff, but there's some things we need to start testing a lot more than we do. The will of God. The word will, you could put it this way, desire. If I read it this way now, maybe it gets a little clearer. That by testing and closely inspecting you will know what the desire of God is. Paul says, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There it is. The world. Do not be conformed to that way. The first thing when something comes into your life, you should ask your question, does this come from God or not? Now, you guys and gals know my, my understanding of this. I believe, by and large, every one of us knows the will of God to a large degree. We know it's God's will that we tell others about Christ. We know it's God's will that we love one another. We know that it's God's will to uh, uh, come to church uh, as 
faithfully. Uh, we, we know it's God's will to pray. We know it's God's will to read the Bible. We know it's God's will. I mean, you could, you could make an extensive list. In fact, go home and, and, and make a list what you know God's will is. And there's some ways and there's some times when you're not sure of the will of God. I get that. But overall, a lot of times uh, you have been taught by God how you ought to live. That's what John says. The will of God is not some maze. Now, there's times you have to make a judgment call. I get that. But for the most part, if you just live the commandments of God and you live the commandments that Jesus gave you, love your neighbor as yourself, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, you could live pretty well knowing the will of God. And like, like I said, I only scratched the surface. I bet you anybody in this congregation could go home today and rattle off 25 things that you know is the will of God. But then there's times when, in order to please him, you want to really know the will of God, and you have to test it. So what is the will of God? Something that is good and acceptable and perfect. Smacking somebody. Is that good, acceptable, and perfect? Firing back at them with a loud voice, trying to drag them down, is that good, acceptable, and perfect? Or is it better, the will of God, to pray for your enemies? I think Jesus said that. Because there are certain things we have trouble with. I get that. The word good, here, here comes the sandwich, by the way. <laughs> what I call the pleasing burger, if you will. The word good means positive moral qualities. If something is morally good and you examine it, that is good. It's perfect that it is not lacking moral qualities so you've got good moral qualities and not lacking moral qualities and right in the middle comes the sandwich the sandwich is what is acceptable or what is pleasing to God in the sense of the moral realm is this a good moral quality or is it lacking in moral quality if it is this is not acceptable to God so Paul says do not be conformed living sacrifices do not conform to this world but they renew their minds Kenneth Boa, another good quote here. It is the will of God, his standards, his desires, his motives, his values, his practices, which gradually pull the monarch butterfly. I love the language here. That pull the monarch butterfly of the believer out of the world's cocoon into which he or she has been squeezed. It is a knowledge and practice of the will of God that leads to spiritual growth and maturity in Christian life. 
I love that language. Isn't that awesome? I love that language. It is the monarch that is pulled out of the cocoon of the world. And those who have been redeemed, let me conclude with this. Those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, I would say this. Give your life to Christ. Not 80% of it, not 75%. Give your entire life to him. Be, and this is for all of us, me, me too, give your life to Christ. Secondly, in light of this text, be a daily sacrifice to God that is holy and acceptable and pleasing. And as you, your feet hit the floor, you instantly realize, I am between two worlds. I am between God's world and the world. And my goal in life is to live for God in this corrupt and dying world. Give Christ your life. Be a daily sacrifice. And do the will of God. That, brothers and sisters, will take you a lifetime to work out. Let me end with a little bit of good news. You will not do it perfectly, and you will struggle. But I tell you, the struggle is worth the effort. I think everybody in this room, I would find it very hard to believe that there would be a person in this room that says, I don't really care. I've been your pastor for quite a while. And I know that you love Jesus. And I want to encourage you as your pastor to live for him in this world that needs to know.